Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. Well, here's today's sermon. This is a singleton. You know, I know, we, you know, you're used to, we're running series. It could be a topical series. We've done, you know, we're going to have a series on the book of Mark in May. We're going to start that. I'm actually going to be in Mark this morning. So when I, we start preaching that series, I will not go into the story that we're going to be looking at today. But here is the title of today's sermon. Why don't you just say to somebody next to you, four of a kind beats a full house. Say it to somebody next. We never do that, but say it to somebody next to you. I know some of you are going, that's not, hey, listen, I don't play cards. I saw my father-in-law's face. He's like, I don't think that's really true. Well, in this case, in this biblical story, four of a kind beats a full house all the time, all the time. And what's interesting, I want to start with a little story. You know, I love to delve into history. One of my favorite books is about community. But you know what's interesting? The book is really not about community. That was not the author's intended purpose. The author's name, he's one of the foremost, most prolific historians in America. His name is Stephen Ambrose. And uh, I I can't get enough of of his works. And there's one book he wrote, and you'd know the name, because many of you probably saw the HBO TV show adapted from the book, Band of Brothers. How many of you saw the HBO show? Probably never read the book. But that book is really about community. And here's a picture. It's the 101st Airborne, right, in the army. It's the story of them and and going behind enemy lines on D-Day. And they take out on Utah Beach, they take out four German cannons. And they go in and they, you know, bloody battles. And they make their way through France and they get into the heart of Germany. And they actually, they, they get to Hitler's headquarters there at Eagle's Nest and they take it over. It's that whole story. But what was so amazing to me is, this is the part of the book that really hit me. Because it is about war. But here's more what the story is about. Here's what these men did. All right? And Ambrose puts it this way. He said, they thought the army was boring, unfeeling, and chicken. And they hated it. They found combat to be destruction and death. Anything was better than the blood and carnage, the impossible demands made on the body. Anything, that is, except letting down their buddies. In combat, they found the closest brotherhood they ever knew. They found selflessness. They found they could love the other guy in their foxhole more than themselves. They found that in war, men who loved life would give their lives for them. The result of sharing all that stress through training and through combat created a bond between the men of easy company that will last forever. Did you hear what he's saying there? These men sacrificed for each other. These men suffered for their their buddies here in easy company. And they laid down their lives for each other. Are you kidding me? That's what the church is. He's saying this is a book about history, but this is what the church is supposed to be. Yeah, it's low Sunday. Listen, I brought my A game today. This is not one of those sermons where I'm like, hey, you know, I'm just going to throw something out there. No, this is, this is going to be, I think you're going to be blessed by this this morning. So listen, understand, we are supposed to be as a community, we are supposed to be a band of brothers and sisters that stick together through thick and thin and have an irrational, get this, an irrational sense of commitment to the well-being of the community. Did you hear that? Irrational. It's not supposed to make any sense to the world how we stick together through difficult and arduous situations. That's what the church of Christ is. 
If you're not in a hill house, you better get in one. You need a platoon. You need a group of people that you can be a part of. It's just the beginning too. We're supposed to walk with each other through everything. And some of you are going, yeah, I heard this before. Just wait, just wait. Okay? I'm going to drop some bombs through a story. If you have your Bibles, let's talk about a story in the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 2, the story, a famous story that you've read. And I know, listen, we, we read things, right? We read stories. There's an ancient rabbinic saying that there are 70 different faces to each word in the Bible. 70 70 different ways to look at it. There's over a thousand different ways that we can look at a story and apply it to our lives and be enriched by the word. It's the only book that is out there that is ne- it doesn't end in trying to find life and trying to find meaning. And it's always fresh. So if you want a fresh word from God this morning, you turn in, in Mark chapter 2. We're going to start at the top of the chapter there because there's a story and there are men in here in this story that will go lengths to help out another friend. And in our culture today, these guys would have probably gotten sued for what they did. Right? So let's start here at the top. Mark 2, starting in verse 1. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days talking about Jesus. And it was heard that he was in the house. He is in the house here this morning. Immediately, I didn't hear any amens. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they had reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sons are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up his bed. It doesn't say later on 10 minutes. It doesn't say one day later. It doesn't say two weeks later. It says immediately, because that's the power that Jesus had and still has today. Immediately he arose, took up the bed and went out in the presence of them all. So that all were amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. And guess what? The world has never seen anything like this ever again and never will. It's God's word this morning. And here is Jesus, and he comes to this town, Capernaum. We went there this summer. Do you remember? You were on the bus. Now listen, you remember going there? It was hot that day. The hot Middle Eastern sun. Where is my brother? John, remember how hot it was that day? Come on, give it to me. Do you remember how hot it was? It was 120 degrees. 120. So why am I bringing that up? When you hear these, these stories, and as you know, I love to set the context and give you the history of what's really going on. It's easy to miss things. This is not, this is a hot day. It's not like it is outside. So these men do something extraordinary in the hot Middle Eastern sun. Now, also, I want to show you, this is where Capernaum is on a map up here. 
Now, I want you to notice in Luke's, now, I didn't read Luke's take on this story, right? Mark is the first one, synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark wrote first, Matthew and Luke take some stuff from Mark, right? In Luke's gospel, it tells us that people came from all over. There are not just people coming from Capernaum. People are coming, if there are scribes and Pharisees, where would they have been located? Many of them would have been located here in Jerusalem, which is 120 miles away from Capernaum. I don't know for sure, right? It's conjecture. We don't know for sure. But I'm telling you, people traveled. The word got out on this one, Jesus, when he was walking around, that he was performing miracles. And he was a rabbi that had in Jewish, they would say, shmiha. He had authority and people wanted to be around him. No wonder there was no room for him in the house. So here he is, he is in Capernaum, and there are people everywhere. You also need to understand, many scholars say this, in every commentary I looked at, people think this was Peter's house in Capernaum. Peter's house, right? And it makes sense. He's in Peter's house. Now, hospitality was a big thing in the ancient world. So when you were going to have somebody that was like a rabbi coming to your home, you didn't close the door and stop people when it was full. Hey, you know what? Sorry, we're done. We're at full capacity. You know, a fire department's going to come. Can't have more than 500 people. You just, you kept the door open. You didn't stop people from coming in. So you have to see the picture. There are tons and tons of people that are here. Can you imagine? Can we sit here for a second? Can we imagine what life would have been like for this paralytic? Imagine what life would have been like. You have to use your imagination. We don't a lot of times. But use your imagination. His life is defined by living on a mat that is probably three feet wide by six feet long. Somebody has to feed him. Somebody has to bathe him. Somebody has to clothe him. Somebody has to move him around on that bed so he doesn't get bed sores. This man will not know the independence that you and I know. You got up this morning at independence. You figured out what you wanted to eat. You figured out what you wanted to wear, right? And you came here. We, we, we hold on to that fiercely. We love our independence. Well, here is a man in the story that did not have that independence. His life was not his own, and he's always depending on other people. And in the ancient world, this man was a beggar. He would have been a beggar. He would have had to rely on other people for his daily sustenance. To live day to day, he would have to rely on other people to drop some coins. Here you go there, beggar. And they would drop coins for him. And I think about a man that sometimes at night, he would, he would have incredible dreams. How many of you know if you ever got hurt or you have a very vivid dreams sometimes? I picture a man that is sitting in his bed and he dreams and he's thinking about what his life is like, and he's thinking that he's actually running around and he's married and he has kids. But you know what? The dream turns into a nightmare because eventually he opens up his eyes and he looks at the ceiling of a room in which he will never walk out of. Life can be cruel sometimes. And for this man, it has been. We don't know when this happened. We don't know if he was born this way. We don't know if, if later on in life he was put in this condition. We don't know that. But I have to imagine here is a man that had incredible dreams, but they're shot because of the fact that he can't really move around. But I'll tell you what the man has. The man has some amazing friends. Amazing friends. 
And they do something that is totally irrational in that world. And how about this? You know what the Greeks said? The Greeks said, if somebody had an anomaly, if they had some sort of birth defect, that you were to get rid of them, a child that was born into the world. The Romans in the 5th century, in the 5th century, the Romans had a statute on the books that if a child was born, deformed, you were to get rid of it as soon as possible. The ancient world was quite cruel when it came to children that were born this way. But here are these men in the story that say, we are still going to be your friend. And you have to remember, there's another stigma that is attached to the story. And here it is. In the ancient world, they also believed that if somebody had physical issues like this, they, somebody, they brought it on themselves. Remember the story when the disciples are with Jesus and the man comes and he's blind and the disciples say to Jesus, who sinned? Was it, was it this man or was it his parents? That's what they believed in the ancient world. Somebody, you must have done something. So that's why this friendship makes absolutely no sense. And they refuse to let something stop them in the face of formidable obstacles. They say, you know what? We will not stop. We are going to get this man to Jesus. And how about, can I bring it to our world today? How about our world today? You know what Henry Cloud says, psychologist Henry Cloud? The number one way, get this now, this is really deep. The number one way to develop meaningful relationships. You want to know what it is? Get ready. You ready? Make them a priority. Did you get that? I know you're half asleep and you're still thinking about the, 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 the chocolate Easter bunny that's half eaten at home. And you're looking at the flowers that are going to die, right? But come on, really, how, how simple that is. Deceptively simple in making it a priority in our lives. We don't do that. And what do we always say to each other? You know, I, I, had, uh, I had some time this week with a friend. I met with a friend that we've been talking forever about getting together. We got together. I was with some friends last night, the same thing. And I saw this, you know, I saw this individual a while ago and we were just talking and the person said to me, you know, are we going to just keep saying this over and over again? Hey, look, when, when are we going to get together? If we don't put a date on the calendar, we're never going to get together. You know what we say all the time as people? What do we say? When things slow down, then we'll get together. You know when things slow down? When you die. You know, it's so funny, right? Any, every wake, and this is morbid, but it's really true. Every wake that you go to people and they go up to the casket... Ah, oh, they look so peaceful. Yeah. Rigor mortis will do that to you. Right? It's true. And we say that all the time, maybe when things slow down, but we live in an individualistic culture. And you know what our individualistic culture does? It puts romantic love first. Romantic love is right at the top. I am at the food store at seven o'clock this morning and I'm on the checkout line and I'm looking at the magazines over here and all the magazines. It doesn't talk about who became friends with who. It talks about who's cheating on who, whose marriage is breaking up. But I don't even know who half these people are, but that's what we're all interested. That's what people look at. That's what people care about. Our society talks about romantic love. We don't talk enough about friendship. C.S. Lewis, if you want his, one of his great essays, books, The Four Loves, and his essay on friendship is the cream of the crop. It's amazing. You know my love for C.S. Lewis. It is off the charts. And you also know my love. How could I avoid talking about this on a Sunday where we're talking about community, Lord of the Rings? Right? Right? Lord of the Rings. Arguably, some of the best, it is, some of the best literature from the 20th century. And Tolkien, was, it's, it's the fellowship of the ring, and it's all about, it, you know, let me just tell you, I have to tell you this, because it bothers me. 
You know when you saw the movies, the trilogy, and the love stories, and you have Aragon, son of Arathon, heir to the throne of Isildur, and you have Arwen over here, and they eventually like get together, right? Did you know in the books, they're at the end, if you look at the Fellowship of the Ring, you'll go to the first book. You know what? In the first book, in the appendix, you will read about the love story. The whole story is about the fellowship of getting the ring to Mordor. It's about friendship. Friendship! It's not about love. But it doesn't really sell it. I don't think that many people want to watch it when it's, you know, without the love story intertwined in there. So I just thought I'd get that out there. But that really is the world we live in. Lewis says this in his essay. I didn't put it up here in a PowerPoint slide, but just catch this. He says, friendship is the least instinctive, organic, biological, and get this, and necessary. It has least commerce with our nerves. There is nothing throaty about it. Nothing that quickens the pulse or turns you red and pale. Nothing. But this is, we live in a culture, you live in an age that doesn't press this. You don't need that. And we're so busy, right? We devote so much time to our jobs. We devote so much time to our finances. Listen, your most precious commodity in this world is your time. And how come we take our time and we devote it to all these things? And I get it. We have to have jobs. We have to put roofs over our head. We have to pay mortgages. I get all that stuff. But how come it is not a priority in our lives? It's not a priority. We're so busy running around and scripture is pretty clear. We are supposed to be a people that are a band of brothers and sisters. We are supposed to be a people that are living our lives together, sharing our lives. And there are no perfect people. We have the signs not up here right now, but there is not one perfect. If you're a perfect person, I feel bad for you. If you think you're perfect, there aren't any perfect people in this world imperfect, broken people go to meetings and they share their lives together. And I look at this story and I see a man here that is probably jealous for the independence of his friends. Can I say it like that? He probably, I have to imagine at some point in time, he looked at those friends and said, you know what? I'd give anything to trade places with those guys. I'd give anything to be like one of those guys. And here he is, friends, stay with me. Here he is, and he's on this mat. Everybody sees his mat. Everybody sees what his condition is. They see him in his neediness. And you know what we do? We all have mats. You may not think that you carry a mat around with you, but you have a mat. And what we do is we do mat management. And we try to hide our mats. I don't want you to see my mats. That's what we do. We're very good at that. Your mat may be your inability to trust. Your mat may be you have to retain control in something. Your mat may be there's a secret that you have that you want to hold on to and you don't want anybody to know about it. There may be shame. There may be guilt. Whatever your mat is, you have a mat. And the problem is we hide it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Life Together an amazing book. You know, some, can I say this too? Um, this is like a parenthetical statement. You know I read a lot, right? I've been a, I've been a machine the last couple of weeks because I found out, and don't, don't laugh at me, that I can, with, this, with the big iPhone, I can read better on the, the Kindle app on my phone. So everywhere I go, I carry it. If I'm walking between periods, I'm a high school teacher too, if you don't know who I am, I'm, walking, I'm carrying my phone and I'm reading some of the garbage that is out there. There is, I'm being serious. Some of this stuff, I'm like, who wrote this? Are they kidding me? You didn't want to hear that, but it's true. Listen, you go to the classics. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I wasn't going to say this, but part of the underground church movement, right? When Hitler was in power, you read about this guy who's writing from literally, he's in a concentration camp, he's in a prison, chooses to come back here to Germany. He could have left and, and he could have come to America for refuge and safety. But he stayed there and he writes and he talks about, he says, you know what? We dare not be sinners. I'm paraphrasing what he says in the book, but we dare not be sinners. When there is a sinner among us, right, that comes out, oh my gosh, there's a sinner. That's a sinner. Do you see this person over here? We are, we'd rather be pious and we would rather be righteous and we would rather do all the right things and we would rather tell people that I am blessed coming in and going out. We don't want to talk about our real pain. We don't want to talk about our real problems. Oh my gosh, Bonhoeffer is right. And we live alone, he says, in hypocrisy and loneliness. You know what the interesting thing, and it's kind of, I guess, not ironic, maybe paradoxic. We think that by hiding our mat, that pe- people won't accept us if we show, their, show the mat. But you know what happens in the midst of real safe community? When we show people our mat, and we let them see our bro- truly loved and accepted, that's when the power of the Holy Spirit comes in and can invade our lives and can invade a group and can do amazing things. You believe that? Wow, you're sleeping today. I'm not sleeping. You are. So we do, we're pretty good at doing map management. I think we are. But it's time really for us to understand what's at stake. And I see these guys here, right? These guys hear that Jesus is coming to town. The four men, right, when they hear about this, they, they know, they say, you know, we got to get our friend to the rabbi. Can I, put a play, can I play this out a little bit, right? You mind if I play this out a little bit? So I imagine, right, the situation where here are these four guys and maybe they're having a conversation. Here's the guy that the paralytics on the mat. And one of the guys is like, hey, man, I heard that uh, Jesus is uh, going to be in Capernaum. The other guy's like, Jesus, is that Mary and Joseph's son? Yeah, I heard there was some crazy stuff going on, right, about his birth and all that kind of stuff. The other guy's like, yeah, yeah, I heard that stuff too, man. You know what? I don't know about that guy, though. You remember when we were kids? Remember we'd go to the pool, and he'd, like, walk on top of the water at the pool, and he'd really make us all look kind of stupid? Is that that same Jesus? Are we, we're going to go see that guy today? And the other guy's like, yeah, man, we've got nothing else to do. It's hot here. Let's take him. And here's the guy on the mat. I see the guy on the mat. Like, guys, you really, please, you don't have to do this. Really, you don't have to do it. I'll be fine. Really, I'll be fine. And the other guy's like, you got no choice, man. We're going to literally carry you there. Where are you going to go? You're not going anywhere. We're taking you to see the rabbi. You're going to go see Jesus. And we're not going to stop until you get there. Nothing will get in the way of us going to see Jesus. And we're going to see what he can do. And tomorrow morning, listen, man, tomorrow morning, we're coming here at nine o'clock. So you better be ready. And you have no choice because we're literally going to be carrying you here. You can't run away. You have to go. It's your only choice. Right? So there they are. Right? And they leave there. And they're getting all set up. And I, I can't imagine what it was like for that guy that night, right? Just in my, my version of the story. The king, what, what, did Jimmy, what did Jimmy Evans say at the marriage seminar? He, I'm Jimmy too. So the, the king Jimmy, what did he say? The king Jimmy version, right? Right, right? Yeah, it's funny. I'm James, right? James, Jimmy. So I can say that too. The king James version. Some of you are like, are you with me or No. He said that was hysterical when he said it. It was one of the funniest things he said. All right, I'll get on with the sermon. All right, all right. Great story. It reminds me. What would we do without friends? Come on, really. What would we do without a group of friends that were irrational in their commitment to us? I'll give you a little story. 
Jackie Robinson, as you know, is the uh, first black man to break the color barrier. Many of you probably saw the movie 42 uh, in chronicling his experience and what that was like. And I've read a lot about the story. And the most interesting story to me has to do with a game that was taking place against the Boston Red Sox in Boston. You see, people were hurling racial epithets at him when he was playing. They would spit on him. Uh, players, he was a second baseman, when they would slide into second base, they'd put their spikes up, right, with the metal, and, and really try to do him harm. Well, there came a very poignant moment, things came to a crescendo, they're playing the Boston Red Sox, and the fans are really heckling him, it's, it's worse than it's ever been. And there he is in the field, and a ball is hit, and it comes to him, and he makes an error, goes between his legs into the outfield. You could, I mean, the crowd is, it's euphoric. The crowd is crazy. Everybody is after him. Everyone's yelling at him. With that, the shortstop of the team, his name was Pee Wee Reese. He calls a timeout, tells the ump, timeout. He walks over to Robinson, takes his arm, puts it around Robinson, and looks at the crowd, looks at the crowd, and it's to say, I'm with him, I'm making my bed with him. This is during a time, this is a southern boy, a white southern boy, who said, I'm not going to be living in a world where race is going to define who I am. It's going to be the content of my character and his character. Oh, now you woke up. Welcome, welcome to church. And he did not let race get in the way. It's amazing when there's a group of friends, people that we have that will go to bat for us, no matter what people say, no matter what people do. Can I tell you, and this is, I didn't plan on this too, but I'm going I'm to give it to you this morning. Let me tell you, I'm always transparent. I don't get up here. I, don't, I can't listen to people on TV when they don't talk about their own lives and they kind of hide. I want to know what their mat is. I want to know what they're carrying. And you know what I've been carrying? I have a situation. You know why this story is real for me? I said it to Megan over and over. I have a two-year-old. He's two years and two months. He just started walking this week. Started walking. And I think of the story where this man gets up at the end of the story and starts walking. You know what my mat is? My mat is fear. God, do you see what's going on here? Are you really in control? Do you see what's going on in my situation? Do you see that my wife has seven therapy sessions some days? Do you see that, Lord? And I tell you that too, because we had a doctor. We went to, Megan went to this doctor and she does amazing research. She's an amazing mom. And we went to this doctor that like, he has, it's called like brain balance. This is, I feel like it's like an advertisement for this guy. But the guy has centers all over the country. This guy is a big deal. He's written books. One of his books sold hundreds of thousands of copies. People know who the guy is. He calls us up a couple of months ago after meeting with her. I want to come to your house. Wait, What? You want to come to my house? So the guy comes with his wife to my house. Parents are there. Therapists are there. Everybody, we're all there. We're all sitting there and every word this guy has to say, he's an expert. But the thing that really hit me was his wife came. You know why his wife came? Because she said 85% of cases where people have issues with their kids, our kid's going to be fine in Jesus' name. I'm not speaking anything over my kid. I don't know about you with your kids. I'm standing for my kid. But 85%, listen, listen, 
She said 85%, but she said, what a community that you have around you of people. And I said to Megan, and Megan, look, we looked at each other afterwards, and we cried because we knew without community and people carrying us along the way, picking up an edge of the mat and saying, I'll help carry you in this situation, we would never, ever make it. And maybe we would be part of the statistic, but since I'm part of a community and I'm leaning on other people, that will not come my way. The gates of hell will not prevail in my house. So here they are, friends. Here they are. They're at the house now, right? I want you to picture the scene when they go up to the door. And I see somebody at the door, right? And they come up and they're like, it's not what we expected. There are tons of people. And there's a guy at the door. And, and, and the one guy that's at the front of the mat, he says, hey, can we go in? Take a number. Take a number. Are you kidding me? Look at this place. This looks like a war zone in the story. You have to see it that way. There are people that are blind. There are other people that are lame. Do you think this was the only person that came to see Jesus on this hot day in Capernaum? I don't think so. There were other people that were there and they were bandaged and there were people that were crippled and there were people that were lame every which way. And this guy's saying, are you kidding me? Look around you. I don't know what's wrong with your friend, but you better get in line because there's a lot of people that got here before you. And I see them, right? I see them kind of like shift around and maybe they're going all around the house and there's people on the window and some woman says, don't even think about it. And they keep moving around the house, right? And they're going to different sections of the house. And then eventually they realize there's no way in this house. But the master is in the house, friends. The master teacher, the master rabbi is inside the house. He's in the house. Got to get in there. And then they, they, they huddle up, right? A little huddle and the one guy, right, the, uh, he's, he has the management style. He's like the MBA. And he says to him, hey, guys, what are we going to do? Does anybody have any ideas? And then I picture the guy over here that's got the tattoos. And he's got the piercings, right? And he's like an out-of-the-box kind of thinker. And he's like, yo, dudes, I got a great idea, man. I know what we're going to do. By the way, Holmes, in, in Jesus' day, they had a staircase going up the back. It's real, okay? Why don't, back to the story. Why don't we, man, why don't we go up the stairs and we go through the roof? Anybody else have any ideas? No other ideas. There's no other ideas. There's silence. Yo, dudes, let's do it. What did that look like that day to see four men carrying this man on his mat upstairs after they have just probably walked a long distance in the hot sun and they go up that stairs and they will not be deterred. They will not be, they will not turn back. And do you want to get a little more history? Let me, let me, you have to see this. When they get to the top of the house, you know what a house was like? Okay. At the top of the house, what a roof was like, they would have timbers that were separated every two to three feet. Now, crosswise, they would have branches, they would have reeds, and then they would have twigs, right? Laid over on top and pressed down. Then they would take an inch of dirt and they would pack it in so there was no leakage. That's what a roof was. Now, in the springtime, grass would grow on top of that. I'm telling you that this was, they say a roof was about two feet thick, Two feet thick. You, what was the picture that you had in the story? I guarantee some of you were like, you know, the guys were like, just ripped off the roof. And they were like, hey, man, what's going on? Hey, we got to bring our friend to you right now. No, no, no. You have to see men. They are really excavating. And they are feverishly ripping at the dirt. And they're ripping off the reeds. And they're ripping off the twigs. Because they have a friend that has to get to Jesus. 
Is that the attitude that we have when somebody is down and out and our friends need us? Is that the attitude? Are we going to let things stand in the way when the master is in the house? Told you I came to preach today. What's our attitude? These guys are tenacious. I'm a passionate preacher. I don't make, it's just the way I am. I can't do anything without passion. I don't know, I try. Can't you just preach the sermon like, no, I can't do it. But I look up and see four men that are so passionate, passionate about getting their hands dirty and making sure that their friend gets to Jesus. Now, 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 now. What does it look like inside the house? Oh, little pieces of dirt start falling. And then you have big chunks of first century plaster that is falling on their heads. Imagine you're sitting there, right? And you're listening to the teacher and the distraction level starts to rise as these pieces. This really happened, friends. This is a real story. I was in Capernaum. I saw the ruins. I saw things there. This is a real story from history. And the pieces of dirt are coming down, right? What was it like in the house for people that are there? What was it like as, they, as Jesus looked up and he saw these people that are here? And then I think of two. You know what I think of two? I, I, I'm, this week I'm going, what was it like for Peter if Peter really owned the house? He has a skylight that has just opened up in his house. He didn't ask for there to be a, sky, a skylight when he brought Jesus in. Hey, Jesus, can you come to my house? He has an instant skylight. His insurance agent is there. Hey, buddy. Um... What, do, what can we do about this? Can I put a claim in for this? Sorry, pal. It's an act of God. Jesus is here. <laughs> thought that was cute. <laughs> and you think about this man, right? This is the biggest risk of his life. Right? Good timing on that. That was good timing. The phone's even, you know, like that joke. But really, this is the biggest risk of this guy's life. He's been waiting for this. Sorry, Naomi, I have to. He's been waiting for this moment his entire life. Oh, Lord. That's the music I see. Sorry, if I've been singing that song all week, that was pretty good. So I see that song like playing in the background, right? And here's the guy. I see all their faces. They're sweaty. Don't be religious on me. Come on, man. I see, it's right, amen. I see their faces and they're sweaty and they're dirty, but what was it like, really? This is the biggest risk of this guy's life. What was it like for him, the trust factor? As his friends, they probably had ropes. We don't know exactly how they got him down there, but what was it like? He's thinking, is the crowd going to be civil to me? Are people going to mock me and ridicule me because I came in this way? And what is this guy, Jesus, what is he going to do? Is he going to look at me? And is he going to look at me with disdain? Is he going to be angry with me that I interrupted his great talk? Is he going to be upset? And what about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? What are they going to say? Again, this is a real human being. This is a real situation. This really happened. Can he trust him? And here you go. Here's Jesus. I want you to see Jesus' reaction. Look at Jesus staring down at this man. Now, every other time in the... I'm going to drop some bombs now. I'm going to go deeper. I didn't go that deep yet. We'll go a little deeper in the end here. When you look at Jesus' face and he's looking at this man... Did you know he doesn't even, Jesus doesn't even say, the men that bring, the four men that bring the guy to Jesus, first of all, they don't even say anything, right? At first, they don't say anything. They don't have to say anything because they can see Jesus' face. Jesus can see them and he's amazed at what he sees when he sees this group that has that irrational commitment to one of its members. 
But you know what he sees, friends? He doesn't see a broken body. He sees a broken soul. He does not see a broken body. He sees a broken soul. Well, that's just the start here. And you know what's funny to me? Now, now, now this is where the rubber really meets the road. This is where it's applicable for our lives. You see, this man thinks he's coming to Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Son, your sins are forgiven you. Son, when was the last time you think he heard that? When was the last time somebody called him son? His entire life, he has been defined by a mat that is three feet wide by six feet long. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. You know what he is saying? He's saying a lot. There's only, I don't have a lot of time to go into this, but understand this. I'll give you a few pieces. He's saying to him first and foremost, look, your problem, you think you have a problem and your problem is that you want to get up off of that mat. The problem is you don't see that your problem is so much deeper than that. You think your problem is right here. You know what it is? You think you'll be happy. Stay with me, friends. You think you'll be happy if I will heal your body. That this is what you've dreamed for. This is what you've wanted. This is your greatest wish. That one day you could actually walk, right? That's what you want. But he's saying to him, son, your sins are forgiven. He's not saying it in those words, but he is saying it. He's saying, listen to me. You must see that three months, six months from now, there'll still be an emptiness. Although you can actually walk, although you will be healed, there is a greater need in your life. And you know what happens? That's us. We come to Jesus and we, we think, you know what, God? Can you kind of fix up certain things in my life? Can you fix up certain things? Jesus is a means to an end. And God is saying, look, I want to do a renovation of your heart. I'm not looking to change little things. You say, I just want to turn over a new leaf. That's not what Christianity is. It is a transformation where you're changed from the inside out, where his life now lives inside of you and he takes over. Your greatest need, your greatest desire is not your greatest desire. And how many of you know, like, think of it this way. Dan Gilbert, psychologist from Harvard University, he wrote a great book, Stumbling Onto Happiness. And in his book, he talks about people that win the lottery. You know what he says? Only six months after people win the lottery, they go back to their pre-state level of happiness. Only six months down the road. We think, oh man, once I get this, if I only had this job, if I only had this spouse, then one, oh man, then I will truly be happy. Jesus is saying the deepest need and desire of our heart is really are not our deepest need and desire. It's ultimately him. He wants to be on the throne in our lives. He wants to be here. And he's saying, will you put all these other things aside? Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. But what do we do? We run around and we try to get those things. Listen, he's the only one. Listen, he's the only savior that says this to us. He says... If you trust me, you put your faith in me, I'll fulfill you, right? If you let me down, I'll forgive you. Did you get that? He's the only one. You put your trust in me. You put your trust and faith in me, right? I'll fulfill you. I'll make your wildest dreams come true. If you let me down, I'm still going to forgive you. And we come to God with, and these things and we say, if I had this. And then you know what happens? Can I give you this too? This is from a New York Times writer wrote this some years ago. And it's really interesting because she writes about how she knew celebrities before they ever made it. Before they made it. And here they are, striving and striving. Because all they want to do is make it. 
They want to get to the top of the ladder. They want to get success and whatever success was, they want to make it and make their first big movie and whatever it is. And you know what happened? She said she knew and she didn't give, she doesn't give names in the article, but she said every single one of them, once they got what they wanted, they were miserable, miserable. They were angry and they were upset and they were not happy when they didn't get what they wanted. Now, listen, please, please see this. One of the most important things from the sermon, when they got what they thought they needed, when they got what they thought they wanted, they were more unhappy than they were before. Jim Carrey, we say it. My mom and I say it all the time. Jim Carrey said, I wish everybody could taste celebrity and see how, how unhappy they would be, how miserable they would be. And you see story after story. But why are we chasing all these things now? Because we're in a war. There is a battle that is taking place for the allegiance of our hearts. John Calvin said it. Our hearts are idol factories. And that's okay. But just to know that there are things that are competing for our allegiance. There are things in our lives that are competing for our allegiance. Jesus is saying in this story, there are things that are competing for your allegiance. I'm the only one that can sit on your throne. Can I give you one more little thing here? Can I give you one more thing? All right. Here's here's another piece that really, really hits me. You know when he says here, I don't even know where I am. Where am I? I'm somewhere. I don't know. I'll just give it to you. When, that doesn't happen, right? That doesn't happen. But it happened today. Uh, When, it's funny, when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Do you know why the scribes and the Pharisees are so incensed? I'll tell you why. They're so upset. Because Jesus is saying, I forgive you. Present tense. There would have been goosebumps on everybody's arms when Jesus said these words. Because he is saying, you have sinned against me. Come on, hear this. You think you've read the story before, right? You have sinned against me. You haven't sinned against other people. Can I, C.S. Lewis says it better than I can. Let's just go to C.S. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. This makes sense only if he really was God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. He was saying, you have sinned against me. And every teacher of the law knew it in that room. And you know what? The inexorable path to the cross, every commentator says it. Guess what? It started right here in this story. This is where they look at him with hatred and disdain that this guy is saying he's the Messiah. And here is one Jesus. When he walks out of the house, he is saying there is no turning back and I am resolute and there is a cross that is before me. But the cross was before him because he knew the tomb was ahead of him after that. And he knew there would be a resurrection Sunday. We heard this morning that we're Easter people. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. All right, one last piece. I couldn't resist. Books flying out. I had to bring a mat in. I had to bring a mat in. And here's, the, here's my last thought. Worship team, please come up. I thought of this. Rob, I stole this from school. I'll bring it back. I thought of this guy's life. You know what I thought of? I thought of, what was, what, think about it. What was the end of this guy's life like? You know, I'd love to think like this. I don't think he ever got rid of the mat. I don't think he did. 
And I believe the way my God is that he outlived the other four men that were there. And I want to think, the way I see the story is, there was a funeral, and here he is with his mat, and he tells the crowd, this is one of the men that brought me to see the Messiah, because the Messiah was in the house one day, and he wouldn't stop along with them, and they went one, two, three, and four, and here is this man, and he said, you know what, this is a reminder of the faithfulness of God, this is a reminder of the fellowship of the mat. You know what? I thought about it too. I said, why not in our hill houses like this week? I didn't title the message that way. You understand now why four of a kind beats a full house. You get it now, right? But I'm thinking about it and I said, you know what? It's the fellowship of the mat. That's what Wednesday night is. When we come in and we lay our mats down. We lay them down and right in the middle of the room and we say, this is my brokenness. This is my mat. And I know some of you in here are going, man, I don't, my mat, I don't speak the language of the human heart. I can't go there. I challenge you to get involved in a community and to take on an irrational sense of commitment to the other people in your group. And if you're not, please, I, I implore you, I beg of you to join a small group and see that there is power in real, there's power when we meet in this community. Oh, but there is more power when we go deeper in our hill houses. And there's more power even outside of that when we really do life together. And I know it's hard. I'm not doing a great job of it. I want to go farther. I want to go deeper in my relationships with those I love, but there are no excuses. There are no excuses for this. I don't care how busy we are. I don't care how tired we are. We have to make the fellowship of the mat a priority. And you know what? I will say this. We had our Hill House meeting, a leadership meeting yesterday. Let me tell you, you know what we said? Jamal said to the group in in looking at all the numbers, almost 70% of the people in this place are involved in Hill House. 70%. I don't know how many churches can boast that. Let me tell you something. There is something that has been ignited in this church. Jump on board because we're moving ahead full steam. I didn't stop. Listen, I came in this morning, you know, this whole week. And I said, you know what? The easiest thing to do would be to just lay back and do something really simple. We have Naomi's angelic voice that is going to sing to us today. No, no, no. Challenging you here today. It's all about this this week. You'll get questions. Do you need anything else for a Hill House group, a meeting? You have a lot to talk about. You have a lot to chew on. Lord, Father, I thank you for this story. Father, I thank you for the faith of these four men. Let nothing stand in their way in bringing the paralytic to you. Father, may we come to you with our brokenness and our shame and our guilt and just lay it down on your feet. Lord, you took care of it on Calvary 2,000 years ago. Why do we keep picking up all of our problems? Why do we hide? Why do we, why do we have mat management? Father, help us to be real and true. May we gather on Wednesday night, not as the pious, not as the righteous. May we gather as sinners. Paul, the Apostle Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. I, James Lecce, am the chief of sinners. I am a sinner, but I thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace. I thank you for how aggressive your grace was in this story. Although this man never repented, he never vocalized anything, he never said anything, you looked for a little crease and you knew this man was coming to you and you are so aggressive and you went after him. And Lord, right now, you're going after people in this room. Father, smother people with your grace and your love. We can't run from it. That's why they call it amazing. 
May we taste and see of it at this table this morning. Give us a new picture. Give us an understanding. May we all bring our mats up to this table. May we not hide. May we talk honestly to you because you are the creator of the universe. You are the creator of, of the skies. You are the creator of everything. You created us. You knew us before we were in our mother's womb. You, you, you numbered every single hair in our head. Lord, help us to really believe that you're good and that we can really come and find healing for our souls, not just healing for our bodies. Amen. podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.